0: Grab your Bible, turn to First Peter, Chapter Two. First Peter, Chapter Two. A few weeks ago, we went to Jackson, our kindergartner's open house, and it was a great opportunity for us to sit in his classroom and hear from his teacher what he does, you know, from the time he gets there to the time he comes home. He's a five-year-old boy, so we don't get a lot of information from him afterwards. I mean, if you have to threaten your son with some kind of, some form of punishment just to get him to tell you about your day, you know that you're not going to get the details of what's going on during the day. And so we went to open house and it was great and we love his teacher, but it's awkward, right? Because you're an adult in this tiny little chair. You know you know what I mean? And the, you know everybody has to sit, the adults, full-size adults in a tiny, tiny little kindergartner chair. And I don't know what it's like to be a teacher. Do we have any teachers with us this morning? Raise your hand. Round of applause for them. That's a... That is a... I can't imagine what that's like to be a teacher, especially a teacher of kindergartners, but I'm sure every age. And you know that being a teacher is probably you know, very rewarding, but it's not necessarily very encouraging. I can't imagine that uh, teachers get very many emails from parents that are like, thank you so much. You're the greatest thing that ever happened to our family. There's so much for your time, energy, and to teach our children. I doubt that they get very many of those emails. So parentheses, maybe you should send an email to one of your uh, children's teachers this week to just encourage them, because I doubt that they get very many of those. Probably what they get mostly is the kind of emails where as soon as they see it's from a parent, like their stomach starts getting knots in it, because it's going to be a, you know, why did you give my kid a frowny face? He deserves a smiley face, you know. <laughs> he should have gotten a sticker. He should have gotten two stickers. Why did you give him a B instead of an A? Everyone knows that my son is A++++, and you gave him an A+. What is your problem? I'm sure that they get a lot of emails like this, but there's one night a year where they get to stand tall and the parents have to sit in those little awkward <laughs> chairs. I'm sure they live for that moment. Okay. But you know, as a parent, you're in the tiny little chair. You, you really don't mind that much, do you? No. You don't ever hear parents coming out of kindergarten or open houses going, I can't believe they made us sit in those tiny little chairs. Why didn't they have big chairs for us? Why do we have to sit at the tiny little tables and use the tiny little scissors? No, you don't complain about that. Why? Because you know it's just temporary. It's just a moment. You're just there for a moment. That's not really your place. You know. Back at your home, that's your place. At your work, that's your place. That kindergarten classroom, it's not your place. It's just temporary. And that's the word for us today. For the third time in the first two chapters of 1 Peter, as we've been making, it, making our way through it, he's going to refer to us as temporary residents. Because he wants to remind them that their time here is just temporary. That this, this experience, our experience here on planet Earth in this moment, it's a good moment, but it's just a temporary moment. It's not going to last forever. As great as these, these lives that we're living are, they won't last forever. This is not our place. We have another place that's coming. And he wants to remind us of that. So the... The tension for today is if this place is for us temporary, it's not going to last forever. We're not going to be here forever. And how does that change the way that we live? What is our relationship with this world that we live in where our feet are firmly planted? What should that relationship look like? So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do evil, they may, by observing your good works, glorify God in a day of visitation. So again, he refers to them as aliens and temporary residents. It's the third time he's referred to them as temporary residents. That's how the book starts. Verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, To the temporary residents of the dispersion in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Later on in chapter 1, we talked about it a few weeks ago, he says, Conduct yourselves in reverence during this time of temporary residence. And he says it again here there's a temporary residence, as aliens in your version of the Bible may say. Strangers. Um, Now you remember the context of 1 Peter. He's writing to this group of Christians in what is now northern Turkey to remind them to remain faithful under pressure. They are experiencing some hostility uh, because of their faith in Jesus. And because they have faith in Jesus, their values are different than the values of the culture around them. What they prioritize is different than what their culture prioritizes. Uh, And so anytime you have competing sets of values, even in our culture, uh, there's going to be conflict. And they were the minority. So when conflict happened between the Christians and everyone else, the Christians were on the losing end of that. They were treated as second-class citizens. And so he's reminding them, hey, I know you're, it's not going well. I know that people are treating you hostile. I know they're treating you like you don't have rights. But remember, this time is just temporary. And in their minds, and hopefully in our minds, those phrases, "alien," strangers, temporary residents, should remind us of the patriarchs of the people of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to turn a few pages to the left to Hebrews chapter 11. We said it last week and we said it every week, but Abraham was the the beginning of the family tree, the family of God, the people of God. It started with Abraham when God reached out to him, called him away from his people, away from his city to follow God into an unknown place. And Abraham was going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham had a son named Isaac and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And they are the patriarchs. They're the forefathers of the people of Israel. They're the beginning of that family tree. And this is what Hebrews chapter 11 says about those guys in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. So when God called him to leave his city and the people that he had known, he obeyed. And went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. So they live in tents. That's going to be important in just a second. Verse 10. Verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So they lived in tents. Tents have pegs. They don't have foundations. I don't know if you've been camping lately, but you don't you know, dig really down deep and get the concrete truck to come for your weekend of camping. Why? Because you're only going to be there for a moment. You put pegs in tents. You don't dig foundations. But Abraham was looking forward to a city that had foundations Whose architect and builder, is God. Skip down to verse 13. These all died in faith without having received the promises, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. So God had made them these great promises, but they knew that they weren't going to see the fulfillment of those promises. That was going to be to their ancestors or to the people that were going to come behind, him, behind them. Verse 14. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been remembering the land that they came from, they would have had opportunity to return. So, what that means, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if they had gotten fed up with the tents and they wanted to live in a city, they wanted a permanent place, they could have gone back to the place that Abraham was from. Verse 16, but they now aspire to a better land, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they live in these tents no foundation just pegs they would live here for a while and they live here for a while they live here for a while they live here for a while and they never had any land to call their own so every time they put their pegs down into the dirt they're really putting their pegs down in somebody else's land always having to ask for ask permission ask for protection from whosoever kingdom it was and it was incredibly inconvenient for them It was the call of God, no doubt, but it was incredibly inconvenient. In fact, Genesis tells the story that when Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies, he doesn't even have a place to bury her. Now, if you haven't bumped up to death lately, then that's just kind of not a big deal necessarily. Like, oh, he didn't have a place to bury her. I feel bad for him. But if you've bumped up to death recently, you know how incredibly traumatizing that would be when this person that you have loved your whole life dies. And you don't even have a place to lay her body to rest. The Bible says that he has to ask permission to buy somebody's cave to lay his wife in. It was inconvenient for them. It was a hard life. It was a nomadic life, but they were looking forward to a new city, a city whose architect and builder is God. The book of Revelation tells us that there's gonna be a new Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem is gonna come out of heaven. And it says, its foundations. Has jewels all around it. And it says it is arrayed with the glory of God. And that in the new city, the city that's to come, the city that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were looking forward to, they don't, there's no need for a sun or a moon because the glory of God gives it its light. I want you to turn to Psalm 39. Psalmists say the same thing, that we're temporary residents, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it says it in a different way. Psalm 39. Verse 4. Psalm 39, verse 4. It says, Lord, reveal to me the end of my life. And the number of my days, let me know how transitory I am. So the psalmist wants God to remind him that he's always in transition. You know, as much as we like to think that we have built something, that we have something, that what we have is permanent, that the jobs that we have are permanent, that the families that we have are permanent, that the homes that we have are permanent, that the lifestyle we have is permanent, that our loved ones that we have, that, that those are all permanent, that they'll never go away. As much as we like to think that. We're really just all in transition. Verse 5. You have indeed, you indeed have made my day short in length. And my lifespan is nothing in your sight. So God sees eternity past to eternity future. When he looks down on our life, our life is just a blip. It's just a, just a second in his sight. Yes, every mortal man is only a vapor. Certainly man walks about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they, have frantically, they frantically rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. That means we, we strive, we work hard to gain, to get, to have, we enjoy it for a moment, and then somebody else will decide what to do with it. I don't know if that's sunk into you lately, especially if you're on the younger side, and I'll let you define how what it means to be on the younger side. But you have bought and you have gained and you have had. And most of our stuff, somebody else will decide, trash or keep. Sell or keep. Give away or keep. It says in verse 5 that our life is like a vapor. Every mortal man is only a vapor. I really wanted to bring a vapor up here today. Vapor is one of those things where if I ask you to say, you know, I ask you, what is a vapor? You know, do you know what a vapor is? You would go, yeah, and then I said, explain to me what a vapor is, and you would go, well, uh, you know, it's a vapor. You would have a hard time wrapping words around it, I think, at least I did, and so maybe I'm just the least intelligent person in the room. But vapor is one of those things that we know, but we don't really know how to explain. In fact, if you go to the Wikipedia page for water vapor, you need like a science degree to figure out even what they're saying on Wikipedia. And Wikipedia was created for people like me who just wanted to know stuff, but are not that smart. And I can't even understand what water vapor means on um, you know, Wikipedia. But I think if I'm getting the gist of it, if we have any scientists, I don't need to be corrected. I know I'm wrong. You know, but I think what it is, is water vapor is the gas form of water, right? And then that gas form of water kind of goes up to the sky and then it all collects. And then it gives us what we so love in Houston, humidity, right? So vapor is the the gas form of water or a liquid. And I thought about creating vapors up here, but that was going to require water and boiling and pain, Probably for me. So I I didn't do it. But you can't even see a vapor. Right? I mean, it's molecular. It's atomic. I mean, it's tiny. And he says that our lives, we, not even our lives, but we, me and you, are vapors. And yet, what are most of us doing? Most of us are trying to wrap our arms around a vapor and get it, and protect it, and keep it, and hold it. But the truth is, is it's not even big enough to see. And you compare that with what we saw last week in the beginning of chapter two of First Peter, where it says that Jesus is the cornerstone. Where are you going to dig the foundation of your life? On something that you can't even really see or understand? A vapor? You're going to try to dig a foundation? You're going to try to set up something permanent on a vapor? Or are you going to dig and build your foundation on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? But this is what I'm doing with my life is I'm trying to build something permanent. On something that wasn't made to be permanent. I'm trying to build something solid on something that's in transition. I'm trying to to stop moving something that is moving. But Peter reminds us today that we are temporary residents, that this is not our place, that we have a better city that's coming. And that better city, it's got a foundation made of jewels. And that better city, it's got streets made of gold. And that better city, it's got gates made of pearl. And that better city has no sun or moon because it's arrayed in the glory of God. That's different than a vapor. So what we want to do today is we just want to embrace the temporary. Just embrace the temporary nature Of your life. And when you do that, man, the chains fall off of you. Your priorities totally get reordered. Because then you start looking at everything you do through that lens. I just encourage you today, maybe before you go to bed, to just get out a piece of paper and write down everything about your life. The choices that you're making, the places that you live, the friends that you have, just write everything that you think you can write down about your life in a list form and write it on the left side. And then on the right side, just write really big, temporary residence. And then look back at the left side and then look at the right side and then look at the left side and then look at the right side. Some of the things you're going to go, I've been putting a lot of importance in that. But really when I think of it in the time, in the way that this is just temporary, this is not lasting, this is fleeting, then this is not as important. But then some of the things on the list, they're at the bottom of the list and you're going to think maybe I've been treating this like it's at the bottom of the list. But because my time here is temporary, really it's the most important. Your priorities totally get reordered when we embrace that we are in a time of temporary residence. This is not our place. We have a better place. But we're still here. You know, I'm thinking everyone's still here, right? Right here in this moment, right now. Nobody passed away in the last few seconds. That would be helpful. That would kind of make it weird for the rest of the time. So 1 Peter tells us what we should do and how we should live. When we embrace that we are temporary residents. He gives us two things, just two really simple things. So back to First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Now, to abstain means to hold yourself back. So he wants us to hold ourselves back from our fleshly desires. Your fleshly desires, in case you were going to write something down today. It's the desires of our human nature which has been stained and broken by sin. The desires of our human nature which have been stained and broken by sin. Right, And you can see this in yourself. You can see this in other people. Jackson, he's five Uh, The other day, we're at our house, and uh, he went to go grab his mother's drink, and for whatever reason, his mother did not want him to drink from her cup. I don't know if she was not finished with it yet, which is a totally legitimate right as a parent to not give away your stuff before you're finished, Um, or maybe she wasn't feeling good. I can't really remember what the circumstances is. All I know is that Amanda said to Jackson, as he's kind of moving the cup up, No, I don't want you to drink from my drink. Put it down. Jackson put it down. Jackson Jones, don't. Man, it was on at our house. It was on big time. That's fleshly desire. Listen, I'm not giving my son a hard time. He's five, and you know where he got it? (laughs) And I mean that in a humorous way, and I also mean that in a very biblical way. That human nature, stained and broken by sin, he got that from his father and his mother. You got it from your father. And your mother, they got it from their parents and their parents and their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. We have passed down and will continue to pass down that broken and stained human nature. And it has all kinds of desires that are against the heart and will of God. That's why in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, he says, I don't do the things that I want to do and I do do the things that I'm not supposed to do. There's just something in us that wants to do wrong. That's our fleshly nature nature and it says that it's uh it's a it's, it's describes it as it's w- a war right look what it says it says that the desires that war against us it's warring against us our spirit wants to do what's right our spirit wants to follow god our spirit wants to obey what god has said in his word but our fleshly desire wants to do something other than that and he encourages us to abstain from that i want to show you just a list in the new testament of some uh potential um, Fleshly desires, turn to Galatians chapter 5. So this is not an exhaustive list of fleshly desires, but this this is a demonstration of those. And I think probably all of us can find ourselves in here. I know that I can. And I just wanted to go through them really quickly so that we all know and see in ourselves where our fleshly desires are. So that we don't just assume that we know what they are and we're abstaining from them, but to really see them in print. Is really helpful, I think. Verse 19 of chapter 5 of Galatians says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Now, what that means, that means today if you have secret desires, secret fleshly desires, hello, they're not going to be secret forever. They're, the works of the flesh are obvious, meaning I don't care how hard you try. I don't care how much you try to push down your fleshly desires, apart from the work of the Spirit of God, those secret desires will come out somewhere. And usually, because we've kept them secret for so long, and they've grown and they've grown and they've grown and grown, and grown, when they are revealed, it's over. Destruction has happened. But the works of the flesh are obvious and then he lists, begins to list them. First, uh, he starts with um, sexual stuff. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity. Now, sexual immorality, it's just a general term. For um, any sex outside of the marriage of a man and a woman, so it could be two people sleeping together, it could be a homosexual relationship, it could be an adulterous relationship. It's just a catch-all term for sexual immorality. It says it's a work of the flesh. Uh, Then it says a moral impurity. Moral impurity is unnatural vice, unnatural sexual vice. That's pornography. Aren't you excited? We're talking about these. I'm really, I felt really happy about talking about these. No, I'm incredibly uncomfortable. I just want you to know that. But they're in the Bible, so we're going to talk about them any unnatural sexual device pornography that's um staring at the espn body issue hello Uh, the uh, sports illustrated swimsuit uh, edition it's really enjoying um, television shows on hbo showtime and whatever that have a lot of nudity in them you say that's not why you watch it but secretly it probably is why you watch it because anytime we put it something in a story then somehow it's more acceptable to us i don't know why that is those are unnatural sexual vices. That's moral impurity. They're works of the flesh. And then promiscuity. Promiscuity is just those first two things, and you go public with it. You go bold with it. Things that should be private, you bring out into the open. You're proud of it. Promiscuity. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity. Now, listen, I know that. Um, Anytime we start talking about that stuff, it's, it's super uncomfortable and it's always personal. It's always personal. You can't talk about that, those three things in a vacuum and be objective about it. Because either you have personal experience or you love and know somebody who, who does. And the Bible says that sexual experiences, they have a binding nature. There's a one flesh thing to them. So you can't separate yourself from the idea. And so it's personal. And I understand that. And I always as a church want us to be um, discerning about the difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction is right now if one of these things or, or uh, the specific details of one of these things, if it applies to you and you feel bad about it, That's the Holy Spirit of God doing a good work inside of you to confront you with your own sin. And listen, we're going to get to a bunch of other stuff that I have been confronted with this week. And so this is, we're not picking on anybody. But when you're confronted by the Holy Spirit, that's conviction. So if you are involved in something like this and you feel bad, that's a good work of God. And so if you feel convicted about anything, not just these things, that's a good thing. And you want to respond to that and you want to repent of whatever it is and move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit to change. That's a good thing. But if one of these things was true about you two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and we read it and you start feeling just really awful and bad, but you know in your heart that you have already asked for forgiveness from God, you've already received forgiveness from God, you've made your peace, you've repented of your sin, and you've moved forward in the power of the Spirit and changed, then you don't have to feel bad about that anymore. Will you regret it? Yes, you'll always regret it. But you don't have to be condemned. And when that kind of feeling comes over you, if this is something in your past, then just glory in the grace of God. Thank God for his grace and mercy that none of us could stand before him without his grace and mercy. So we want to discern the difference between conviction and condemnation. Then he moves on. Verse 20, idolatry. Idolatry is the brazen worship of other gods. So You right now are worshiping something other than the one true God. You're giving your life. You're making sacrifices to something besides the one true God. And then sorcery. Sorcery, I love this definition. I read it this week. It's not mine. Is the secret tampering with the powers of evil. Sorcery is the secret tampering with the powers of evil. I thought, how appropriate to talk about the secret powers of evil when tomorrow is Halloween. Hello. And, uh, and so anyway, we'll talk a little bit about Halloween. This is mostly a parenthesis here at Bayou City Fellowship. Uh, but uh, Amanda and I, we could not have come from two more extreme positions on Halloween. Right, Amanda came from a spiritual background where um, they just didn't do Halloween. They did uh, church stuff, fall festival, harvest festival, all those different things. You know, none none of the Halloween stuff. And that's great, and you may be like that today, and that's a, that's fine. And anywhere wherever you find yourself on a spectrum of, of really anything, you want to have your conviction. Don't do anything against your conscience, and just ask, offer grace to those who disagree with you. Right, but I came from the opposite, the opposite end of that in fact we had Halloween parties at my church like at the church not fall festival hello no Halloween straight up Halloween parties and we had costume contests and you could win the costume contest as a vampire as a scary monster as a ghost as a zombie as a mummy Frankenstein you name it you could win it if your costume was good they didn't care what it was they were going to give you the prize Right. So I came from that background, and I think in Houston, like that's just like a no-no. But in Missouri, 20 years ago, that, that was rocking, and it was fun. And I won a lot. My mom's here today, and uh, she made incredible costumes. I went one time as McDonald's french fries. I won. I went one time as, as grapes, like literal grapes. Like I had grapes. It looked like a bunch of green grapes, and I won. It was amazing, and she made all this stuff. It was really unbelievable. I went to another Halloween party back in Missouri. Pray for Missouri. I don't know what their problem is. <laughs> but but how it was not at my church It at a different church and there was like the cauldron with the dry ice smoke coming up like in the church hello so when Amanda and I got married and the first halloween rolled around i mean it didn't really matter because we didn't have kids but uh, the first time halloween rolled around we could not have been coming from the further extremes about halloween you know and uh, and anyway we've worked our way through it after many discussions uh, about it yeah. And so I don't know where you're at on Halloween. And again, this is parentheses. I just wanted to say it. This is our first Halloween as a church. And, um, but I wanted to tell you what we're going to do tomorrow night. And again, you do whatever you want to do. You don't do anything against your conscience. Okay? You be obedient to God, however he's called you and led you. But what we're going to do is we're going to turn on a bunch of lights in our house tomorrow. And we're going to dress our kids up as a Butterfly Princess and as Optimus Prime. <laughs> and one of us is going to sit at our front door, not behind our front door, but on the porch of our home. And we are going to greet every one of our neighbors as they come to our house. There's one night a year where my neighbors will come to my house. And then the other is going to take the butterfly princess and Optimus Prime, and we're going to knock on every door on our street. It's the one night of year that I can knock on the doors of my neighbor's house without any negative ramifications and the Butterfly Princess and Optimus Primer are going to open their bag, and people are going to give them candy. And then they're going to hold it out there for a little longer for a little extra piece of candy. <laughs> because here's our heart. Our heart is I have met more of my neighbors and built more relationships in the last two Halloween nights than I'd have in three and a half years of living on my street. And so for me, it's just smart stewardship of the place that God has planted us on our street. And so that's what we're going to do to meet our neighbors, to re-meet our neighbors, to learn names where we've met them and we've forgotten their names so that we can build relationships where we can love and serve them in Jesus name moving forward. And so I, that may not apply to you. There may not be a butterfly princess or Optimus Prime in your house anymore. And that's great. But I would just ask you to consider as, as a, a, a person in the body of Christ in this city planted in your neighborhood, To maybe, instead of shutting your door and sitting and watching TV, to get your lawn chairs out in your front yard and be the most friendly person on your street so that tomorrow they may not have caught your name, but they'll know, hey, that lady that lives at that house, she thought my costume was awesome. And I want to smile at her when I see her, and I want to wave to her when I drive by. And maybe God might open a door for you there. And so that's just a little parenthesis on Halloween. But again, I want to say to you, you don't go against your conscience. Whatever God has put in your conscience, you obey that. That's more important. But that's what the Joneses are going to do tomorrow night in case anybody cared. But that doesn't really have that much to do with sorcery. Again, sorcery is the secret tampering with the powers of evil. And I just want to say this because we we don't bring it up a lot. But don't be naive. Just in the way that you live, don't be naive. There are spiritual forces of evil. Out there, And listen, that's according to the word of God, not what I saw on the news. That's, that's according to the word of God, not something I read on the internet or a story that somebody told me. There are spiritual forces of evil out there, so don't be naive. And don't unnecessarily open a door to allow their influence on your life. They already hate you. They already are attacking you in some way. Don't go to them and open the door. Be discerning about the way that you live. Listen, for some of us, for me, that means monitoring what I let come through a a, a 40-inch box in my living room. Don't open a door. It means to be discerning about what you will go and set in front of a big giant screen. And a thousand other things. Those are just two examples. Just be discerning. Don't unnecessarily open a door for you. And if at any point you feel like you're being harassed in a very organized, specific way by the enemy, then we want to pray for you. Every Sunday after church, there is a... A prayer and ministry team up here, and we want to pray for you if you're sick. We want to pray for you if you're going into surgery. We want to pray for you if you're coming out of surgery. We want to pray for you if you're carrying a burden, an emotional burden, a relational burden that's heavy. We want to pray for you, um, and if you feel like you're being attacked in an extreme, organized way by the enemy, we want to pray for you. And so we're going to try to make making them more public after every service because we want to really build that into the culture of our church, where you know when you got something going on, there are people who will come and pray for you. And so you just think about that. If you feel like like you're being attacked by the enemy in an organized way. Then you come and they want to pray for you at the end of the service today. But sorcery. Then it goes relationships. And this is where it's got my name written all over it. I struggle with these things every morning when I wake up. Hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy. All of those things are a battle for me day in and day out. All those things got there that got my name on it and maybe yours too. And then the last two have to do with alcohol, drunkenness and carousing. The Bible says that you shouldn't be drunk. The New Testament says that you shouldn't be drunk. And, And being drunk is not the fruit of too many drinks. It's the fruit of the flesh. It's not just that you had one too many. It's that you have a human nature that's stained and broken by sin. And it has fleshly desires. And we want to abstain from those fleshly desires. And the last one, carousing, it's just when you're under the influence and you get loud, bold, attention-seeking, self-centered, and destructive. That's carousing. And those are some examples of the works of the flesh that we're supposed to abstain from. And so if God is convicting you of something, as he has been me this week, we just want to take step, a step of obedience. Now back to First Peter, and this is where we'll finish. First Peter chapter two, verse twelve. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles the gentiles that's unbelievers that's people who don't share their faith in Jesus so that in ca- in a case where they speak against you as those who do evil now again remember that they have a set of values because of their faith in Jesus that the rest of their culture doesn't have and so those cultures are clashing they're the minority and so they're really being picked on they're experiencing hostility and in some cases that's just in the marketplace that's just gossip that's just their neighbors that's just regular people and then at other times we see in the new testament it goes to a governmental level but they're experiencing this hostility because of their faith. And they're being accused of, of, of things they, they didn't do. They're being blamed for things that they didn't do. And we see that even in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul was accused of stirring up trouble that he didn't really stir up. Mostly because they were coming and proclaiming Jesus. And whenever Jesus shows up, stuff happens. And the stuff that was happening, the people in charge didn't like. And so these Christians that Peter is writing to, they're being accused. And so what he wants from them... And he's encouraging them that when they are accused, that the accusations wouldn't stick, that their lives would be so honorable that even when the people accused them of false things, no one would believe it because of the kind of way they live their life. So here's a real world example. If somebody accused you tomorrow of stealing from your company, how many people that you work with would line up to defend you because they know your character? They know you would never Do something like that. That you live such an honorable life that an accusation won't stick if it's not true. And he says, so that they may, by observing your good works, glorify God in a day of visitation. That means so that they will come to glorify God, that they will put their faith in Jesus because of the way that you live Your life. So what that means for us this morning, I think it means that we want to live in front of people. Jesus called us a city on a hill. And the thing about a city on a hill is what? It can't be hidden. And so he wants us to be a city on a hill. He wants people to be able to see your life. Now, not what the Sermon on the Mount says where we practice our righteousness in front of people so we can get praise from them. No, but you just are living in front of and around people. It's so easy in our culture to isolate. You can go to work. You can find a way to isolate at work. You can pick and choose who you're around. Then you come home. You can isolate in your house. You can walk in the door at 5 o'clock, 5.30, not say another word to a person that doesn't live outside of your house. And you can do that for as long as you want. You can pick and choose who you live in front of. But we need to live... So that everyone can see the difference that's in us. Everyone can see what we talked about last week, that Jesus is our distinguishing feature. And so this is a real challenge for me. in a place where God has really been convicting me because I'm a pastor, right? So I leave my house and I go to work and I work with other Christians. They share the same values as me. They have the same goals as me. Then I can come home and be with Amanda and the kids and then we can decide who we're around. And so if I'm not careful, I can go months without ever having an experience, a genuine, meaningful conversation with somebody who is not already like me. And so something I've just been trying to do really, really recently is I'm trying to start a few of my days, just the very beginning of my days, at the Starbucks down the street from my work. It's really simple. I just go in there and start my day. Somehow I get more work done in the Starbucks when there's a lot going around than I do in my office, right? So it's, I'm less distracted, so it's good for my work. And um, it's good for me because over time, they see my face all the time. I see their face all the time regularly. I can learn their names. They can learn my name. And then maybe God will open a door for just a meaningful relationship to be built. But we need to live in front of people. We need to live so people can see us because God wants them to observe our good works, even if they're saying bad things about us. And it leads to them glorifying God. Listen, you have attached Jesus' name to your life, so people are interested. Whether you said something about Jesus, you said you were a Christian, or you just said you go to church, you have now attached Jesus' name to you, and so they are interested to see if that name will make you any different, will make you unique, will make you more or less in any way. And so we want to live so others can see us. We just want to be around people, and then hopefully our honorable life will be a bridge from them to Jesus. That because of your honorable life and my honorable life, they would glorify God. Let's read it again just as we close. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do evil, they may by observing your good works glorify God in a day of visitation. So remember this week, just embrace the temporary nature of your life. Love your life. Enjoy your life. But let your heart be in the place to come. Let your hands and feet be here, but let your heart be in the place to come. This is temporary. This is not our place. It's not our permanent place. Let's not drill foundations in vapors. And then because this is temporary, let's abstain from those desires that all of us have within us that are against the heart of God, that come from our natural human nature, which is stained and broken by sin. And let's live honorable lives so that people understand that Jesus has attached his name to us and we have attached his name to us. And it makes us unique. He is the distinguishing feature of his people. Let's pray.